morning. If you'd like to pick up one of those pew Bibles, the NIV, and turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Philippians 3, 10 through 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Let me read that again. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection. When we talk about resurrection, we are talking about something that is beyond the range of normal human experience. It is beyond the range of normal human experience because it is something that takes us beyond the finality of death. You see, when we attend a funeral, no one is expecting that dead person to get up and walk away. Because death is the end of what we know to be earthly existence. At death, physical life is over. That's final. And yet, is it? In Tokyo in 1983, I was with a group of some 20 South African pastors being addressed by David Yonggi Cho, the pastor of the world's largest individual congregation of one million members. That was a figure in 2007. And as we sat listening to Yonggi Cho, he told us of an awesome experience he had when he was conducting the funeral of one of his members. He told us that just prior to the lowering of the coffin into the grave, there came a loud knocking from inside the coffin. The church deacons fled. They were terrified. They ran away. You see, nobody was expecting that dead man to walk away from that funeral. On Easter Sunday, in churches all over the world, the subject was exactly what it was here. Resurrection. Resurrection. The Greek word for it is anastasis, and I want you to get a hold of that word. I'm going to use it again and again. It's an easy word. Anastasis, meaning resurrection as we would understand it. But in Greek, the word literally means to stand again or to stand up. Now, when applied to Jesus, the word anastasis speaks 
of a man who was thoroughly and unquestionably dead, but who stood up again. Now when Simon Peter and John heard the news that Mary Magdalene had found the tomb empty, both Simon and John ran to the tomb. But John outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. He looked in, but he did not go in until Peter arrived. Then together they entered the tomb, and there with their own eyes they saw the empty linen grave clothes. But there was something very strange about the way those grave clothes were lying. And I've never come across any sermon or preacher who has spotted this. You see, William Barclay explains it. Relying on his understanding of the actual Greek text, he writes this. The grave clothes were not disheveled or disarranged. The grave clothes did not look as if they had been put off or taken off. They were lying in their regular folds as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated out of them. So there were the clothes, once filled with the body of Jesus, the wrappings all around him. But as they looked in, they saw the wrappings lying there just as they were. It was as if he had evaporated out of them. And that is what penetrated the minds of Peter and John. It was not only what they may have read in Scripture that convinced them that Jesus had risen. They had now seen it with their own eyes. This was resurrection. This was anastasis. Anastasis. Jesus had stood up like he had evaporated out of those clothes. He was alive, physically alive. And that fact is what the entire Christian faith rests on. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 10 verse 9. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So then, the whole Christian faith stands upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul makes that absolutely clear in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. He says, you are still in your sins. You see, if Jesus Christ had not been raised, all you would have had there was a wonderful crucified Jew who died like everybody else. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. That's what we believe and that's where we stand. But to the non-believers out there in the street, it seems as if our Christian faith rests upon something so impossible, 
so staggering that it is too good to be true. But nevertheless, we who have believed in Jesus and his resurrection know this. We know that according to Romans 6 verse 4, quote, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, unquote. A new life. How does Christ's resurrection connect with our being able to live a new life? William L. Hendricks explains, he says, the resurrection of Jesus involved his physical body, but his resurrected life was a new kind of life called into being by God. So then what this means is that because Jesus is alive, we have a twofold promise. Firstly, in the living Christ, we have the promise of resurrection or restoration of our spiritual life. You see, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are born again. It's a new life. You come alive. You become a new creation. Old things pass away. New things start happening. That's what happened to me. That's what's happened to many of you in here who can testify to it. When I accepted Jesus Christ, there was a radical change to the way I lived. That's the first thing. In the living Christ, we have the promise of this new life, this resurrection life. Secondly, in the living Christ, we have the promise of the resurrection of the whole person, body and soul at the last day, which is Judgment Day. You know, I used to hear when I was a younger Christian, kids testifying in church in South Africa, and they seemed to have this standard saying, saying, I praise and thank the Lord for saving my soul. He didn't save your soul. He saved all of you, the whole thing. You're not just going to be a disembodied soul in the last day, in the resurrection, just floating around in some kind of soul. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And you will live also like me, in a body like mine. But what does this mean for humanity as a whole? If we're talking about resurrection. What does that mean for humanity as a whole, both the just and the unjust? You know, there's a statement of faith which is called the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's the basis of all Protestant theology. There isn't a soul who knows any doctrine in assemblies of God who would deny it, or any other denomination that is traditional, that is Protestant. The Westminster Westminster Larger Catechism is a biblical-based Protestant document. And it says this concerning what happens to humanity as a whole. You see, the humanity as a whole is the just and the unjust. That's how simple it is. It states, We ought to believe that at the last day there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, the bodies of the just by the Spirit of Christ and by virtue of his resurrection 
shall be raised in power, spiritual and incorruptible, and made like to his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. So it means that the wicked face judgment without being able to plead the blood of Christ, without having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, without having been forgiven by the blood of Christ. But they face this judgment. These people are the ones who in Revelation chapter 2015 are those whose names are not written in the book of life and who are cast into this lake of fire. But they are physically cast into it. Resurrection. What you can gather then now is that in resurrection there is spiritual power unleashed. That same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead so that he pretty well evaporated from these clothes. How can you explain it? Logic cannot explain it. Logic cannot explain how a dead man comes alive. It's impossible. How does all of this, you see, connect? with this impossible thing that happens when a person dies. There's power. Power is connected with it. The Apostle Paul speaks of this power in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Power. Enormous power is released in resurrection. And again, speaking of this resurrection power, Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that this power for us who believe is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That power is for you to live a new life. Bible tells us if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. There is this new life because of this power which is available for you. But here's the problem. We're talking about a new life. When I got saved, as I said, things changed. I came home from a Bible camp where I was led to Christ, and for me it was like a Damascus Road experience. I had the most incredible thrill in my soul. I could hardly breathe from it. And it went on for like three months like this. Incredible sense of the presence of Jesus Christ. And at that time I was rather a rebellious young man, and I came home to the farm where I was running my father's farm, and 
he noticed an immediate difference. He said, what happened to you over there? Because, you see, I'd actually got real tired of farming. I didn't want to farm. I wanted to just clear out and go and do my thing like the prodigal son. But he noticed this difference. Something had happened. Something had changed. I wasn't perfect. But my life was changing day by day as Jesus Christ gave me the strength and the power to live a new life. But you see, not everything was a bed of roses. There were some things left over. Why did I have to continue farming? I didn't want to continue farming. There were all kinds of little problems and hiccups and things all over the place. It wasn't a sudden bed of roses. There were enormous changes in my life. I immediately stopped cursing like a trooper. I immediately stopped drinking. Those were easy things. Other changes had to take place, but there were a lot of things which were kind of in my way. And so when we talk about a new life, we have to ask, what about all those problems in our daily lives that seem so disconnected with this new life in Christ? What about the problems which simply have not gone away and which plague us? And I don't have to be a prophet and tell you what those problems may be for some of you. You all know what they are. We all have difficulties and things that we can't cope with. We think we can't. What about some of life's problems for which we say there is no answer? There's no answer to this. Uh, it just can't be explained. We have a lot of things that we say those things about. No answers. Yet, says J.A. Mottier, the Bible is full of answers. The only difficulty is that they are not the sort of answers we want, like Job's friends. Like Job's friends, we think that we need answers which would make the unexpected, unwanted things fit into some kind of logical framework where you can see how it all works out in your whole life and the whole thing becomes logical. And Because of that, we want answers. We want to know why some things are happening. I learned a long time ago, God doesn't like it when I ask him why. Because sometimes he's just not going to answer you and give you the answers that you want. He'll answer you sometimes, but not at all like you expected, as I'll explain in a little while when I give you some examples. We want to know why some things are happening to us. But you see, when we ask these questions why God turns us away from logic. Logic and God don't go together. God says, your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. We don't comprehend him. We can't understand exactly how he works. He can't be put in a box like some people try to do. When we ask why God wants to take our eyes away from logic and turn them on a spiritual dimension. Show us a spiritual dimension. That's what he wants to do. And what am I talking about when I talk about a spiritual dimension? I have got time, I believe, to give you three examples of a spiritual dimension where things don't work according to logic. First one. In 1979, I was in Zimbabwe which was then Rhodesia. And I was being trained in hunting crop-raiding elephants. 
I was being trained by a very experienced hunter by the name of Norman Payne. He was a man who had an enormous experience, was used by the government to try and rid certain areas of elephants because of the tsetse fly that they were carrying. And I'm not kidding you, it's a fact. He had 3,000 elephants to his credit in terms of what he shot. He was a highly experienced hunter. But now he wasn't doing that, he was just protecting the crops of tribal people in the tribal lands. Now those of you who are from Africa know what I'm talking about. The old tribal ways, if you're in an area where it's no longer city, you have people who are subsistence farmers, they've got their own few acres of corn. I'm talking about an area in Zimbabwe, the tribal trust lands of Kokwe, thousands and thousands of square miles of beautiful country reserved for the African people of that tribal area. And each man would have, maybe he'd have 20, 30 acres where he grew his corn. The land was his, it was everybody's in the tribe. And he'd have these 20 acres of corn and then bad news. One night, 25 elephants come wandering into his cornfield and they start eating. And each elephant devours about a ton of food that night and tramples down an equal amount. And they, come, they go back into the bush during the daytime and come back at night. And after about three days, this man's livelihood and life is wiped out. His corn crop, his food that he was going to harvest for grain for the year, is gone. And this is what I was being trained to do was to shoot these animals. Now my trainer, I was new. I'd been with him for about a week and I knew that he was watching me all the time because first thing they do if a man's training you is he wants to see, well, are you going to make it? Are you going to be the kind of guy we can, you know, appoint as a game ranger in crop protection? He's watching to see if I have any nerve. Will I run away if an elephant charges me? What kind of steel am I made of? And so one night, we were camped in a place that was a very wild place because we had been asked to go there because there were some elephants raiding the, the, the um, crops and also there were some buffalo that were upsetting the grain bins and just eating the grain. So there we were camped in this place and here was the big problem with this whole situation with him. It was this rule that he had. You see, he knew very well that many of the people who have been killed in hunting accidents are killed right in camp with a, a weapon that was supposed to be unloaded. But it wasn't. There was a bullet in it. And somebody got killed while cleaning it because there was a loaded weapon in camp. So he had this rule. In camp, no weapon could be brought into that camp loaded. Our rifles had to be unloaded, the rifle in a bag, and the ammunition in another bag. And that's how we slept at night. And one of the reasons why he did that too was this. His African game scouts in the days of, Zim of uh, Rhodesia were discriminated against. They weren't allowed to carry firearms or own them. 
And so his game scouts had to sleep at night around a fire unarmed. And he said, if the government expects that from them, I will not take any privilege over them and I will sleep unarmed just like them. So there we were, no weapons. Now, in the dead of night, about 1 a.m., there came a sound that you just wouldn't want to hear. Those of you who have lived in Africa may have heard it close up, I don't know. But a lion began to roar from a distance of about from here to the other side of the street. And he wasn't doing what you hear sometimes when lions are in the distance, you hear, this was a full-throated roar close up. It, it is ear-shattering. It turns your blood to water if you're unarmed. And there was this lion roaring. And uh, Norman Payne woke, woke up. Now, he was sleeping. Unlike me, he had a little A-frame, which is a fly to a tent. In other words, it's open both ends to keep the dew off. I lived and slept like most other rangers in those days in Zimbabwe, young fellas. We used to sleep in a little camp cot outside with a mosquito net hanging from a limb. So I was about from here to the front pew away from his little A-frame tent, well, just the A-frame cover, and I was in my camp cot with my mosquito net suspended from a limb. That was me. And here was this lion roaring in the dark. And I was really scared because I felt like I was like lying on a dinner plate. Normal lions don't eat people. Normal lions. You go on the internet and you check up and you'll see that there are countless cases of man-eating going on in Africa all the time. There are many abnormal lions. And I had no way of knowing whether this lion was normal or abnormal. So I lay there scared. And then my trainer insulted me. He said, do you want to come and sleep in the tent with me? <laughs> I said, no. I said, I'm fine. And that was a blatant lie. I wasn't fine at all. I was afraid. But I was a Christian. And there was a spiritual thing at work. There was a spiritual dimension to this, and this was one of the first ones that I experienced in my life, where as I lay there in the dark, I heard the voice of God speaking to me inside my head. Came like a whisper. He even used my name. He said, Lawrence, that lion cannot eat you unless I say so. Well, I could have thought, well, what if he says so tonight? <laughs> but that voice was so clear, so supernatural, so powerful, that I knew he was talking to me. And I knew why he was telling me that was, I could sleep, I could go to sleep. And I'm not telling you a word of a lie. As I lay there, I just, and with this lion roaring, it became quiet, you see. And the lion stopped roaring, and now I couldn't tell where he was. But you see, what happened to me was this peace of God came over me, and I fell asleep. 
with the lion out there, no longer roaring, he may have been coming to get me. But the peace of God came over me and I fell asleep with that lion still out there in the dark and I didn't know where he was. I actually fell asleep. Didn't take long. That's a spiritual dimension. It's not logical that you go to sleep when there's the thing out there and you can no longer hear him anymore and you don't know where he is. Is he near you? Is he coming to get you? Just this peace flooded over me. That was one instance. It's a long way from your experience. Some of you have never even seen a lion in the wilds. But here's one that's closer to home. You're all scared of cancer, aren't we? We're all frightened of getting that. Well, one day I was in, in ministry in South Africa and we had just come back from Israel. And in Israel I'd been getting this strange, horrible feeling in my throat like there was something there. It was painful and it was, it, it was like there was an object deep down in my throat and I felt like I was choking. Slight choking feeling. Well, I came back and I, I, I went to see my doctor. And South African doctors don't just send you for tests immediately. They try a few things. The doctor said to me, well, you know, I, I explained to him I had a lot of post-nasal drip. And he said, well, it could be that. He said, why don't you take two weeks voice rest? Well, I was preaching at that time, but uh, I was about to take two weeks vacation. So I said, well, that's good. I'm taking two weeks vacation. And so we went with my family down to a cottage on the beach. And so here I could have voice rest. And every day I would take my fishing pole and throw it throw a line into the water and try and fish, but I could not concentrate because every time I swallowed, I had this choking feeling in my throat. And I was scared. I thought, man, maybe this is cancer. I tried to fish for about three days and I finally just gave up. I took my fishing pole, went upstairs, up, at least up the, onto the top of the little hill where the cottage was, put the pole away, sat down with my Bible and started to pray. And this is what I said. Lord God, what are you going to do with me? Are you going to heal me through faith in the name of Jesus, or do you want me to go to the doctor? Either one or the other, I asked him. And this was the, now about the second time that I heard his voice in my head. I heard it again, wonderfully clearly. Lawrence, you will finish the course that I have set for you. Once again, I could have said, what if that's now? But I knew from that voice that he was saying to me, you're in my hands. You will complete what I've set for you. And so I believed that. I stopped worrying because that voice was so strong that it took the worry out of me. And I think it was about three days later, I suddenly realized, hey, it's gone. Nothing, no sign of it, completely gone. It's not logical, is it? But what does it mean? Why would I be safe with God? You see, I believe the Bible teaches us that, in a sense, God has this umbrella, umbrella over all those who live in covenant with him. This big umbrella. And underneath that umbrella, he has provided everything for you that you need to grow in new life in Jesus Christ. 
He's given you resurrection power. He's given you His grace so that when you slip up and fall and confess it, He will lift you up again. And He will raise you above your sins and faults gradually, day by day, if you live in covenant with Him. And if you live in covenant with Him, I'm telling you on the authority of the Bible that nothing will take you out until He says so, like He told me with the lion. Because Jesus said in Revelation, the book of Revelation, I believe it was chapter 1, I have the keys of death and hell, not the devil, not demons, not your doctor. Your doctor can't say when you're going to die. He may tell you when he thinks you're going to die. But if you're living in covenant with God, there's only one person who says you're coming home now. And when he says that, it's all okay. And you'll never dodge that day. Because even if you think you can hide from it, in Africa we've got a thing called a button spider. It's about that big. It'll find you if you hide under your bed if that's your day. You won't hide from that day, but you'll be great on that day. It's all fine. You've got to be prepared to go when he says so. Now, here's the problem. You're safe under that umbrella. But if you, by your flesh, go following after things he doesn't want you to get involved with, if you start mixing with a kind of company that will draw you away, and you start doing the kind of things that God hates, and you do them willfully, and you aren't repenting from them, you have stepped out from under the covering of that umbrella. You're living in disobedience. Your own choice. He hasn't asked you to do it. Under the umbrella, he's got his grace at work for you. He'll take care of you. He'll help you through with your weaknesses and faults. He does with me. I, I'm a sinful man like anybody else. But I've got this one thing. I'm not stepping out from under that covenant. Under that covenant, I am secure. Everything is provided. Am I better than anybody else? No. I've learned that a long, long time ago. I wasn't little... Goldilocks, when, before I got saved, I have a bad record in my past. There are people I've damaged, and to this day I wish I could change it, but I can't because I don't even know where they are. I can't repair any of that damage, but Jesus has forgiven me of it. He's changed me. He's, I don't do those things anymore. But you see, I'm like anybody who needs Jesus Christ. I pray this Jesus prayer every day of my life. Before I get up in the mornings, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. And I confess my sins every day. When I, before I get out of bed in the morning, I talk to him about the, the sins that the Holy Spirit has convicted me of that maybe I did yesterday. And I'll talk to him about that. And I'll ask him to forgive me. And I know I'm forgiven. And I know they're washed away. And I know that when I get out of bed, I want to tell you something. I'm not a Christian in bondage because I confess my sins. I'm free. I'm free. If I died now, I'm free. Because he's washed them away, and now I've asked him to manage my day, take control of my life, and help me not to repeat what I did yesterday. Now, there are some things, as some of you well know, that take more than one day to, to, to overcome. Some things, like bad habits, could take, take years. But if you keep working at it with him, don't give up. He'll take you through them and take you out of them. Jesus 
has the power to change your life and mine. So we've told you about the security in Christ when maybe you're afraid you've got cancer or you've got something else. Know this one thing. You live under that umbrella. You're his responsibility. I gave him my whole family. I prayed one day and I said, I give you my family. They're yours. If you take one of them, I'll never say to you why. I'll just know that I need to say what Job said. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's the one story. I'll tell you one more and then we need to stop. This one blows all logic. One day, I stood in a place in Zimbabwe where I was filming and photographing elephants on foot and I was being charged by two very angry elephants and there was nothing in my hands to save me from them. Nothing in my hands except a jammed rifle. My days were numbered. Those two elephants were coming at me. At the time that I'm talking about, they were only about from head of the doorway when I had to turn to run to try and free this jammed rifle. An elephant can run 35 miles an hour with ease. I had an el a pregnant elephant cow chasing me down the road in my truck and she was keeping up with me and I looked at my speedometer 35 miles an hour she was doing. You can't run 35 miles an hour through bush and stuff. And I didn't have a hope. And so as I turned to run, I ran down the side of this prominent, prominent place where this, there was this long grass and this black peninsula sticking out into this lake. And I ran down the side to get some speed up and I, it was an area where there had been marshes and, and, and uh, the, the, the mud had dried. And so as I ran in this tall grass like this, I tripped and fell. And when I fell, the elephants were even closer than from here to the door because I'd seen them and I was going as fast as I could trying to free this rifle, this, this bullet, the cartridge that was stuck in it. Two had tried to feed in it at the same time. That's what had happened. And as I fell, I fell face downwards in the long grass. And I, and I thought, well, I've had it. But still I was trying to free this cartridge. I hooked it out and then worked the shell in and shut it. And as I did that, I rolled onto my back thinking, well, they, they, they should be on top of me here. There was dead silence. And I got up slowly from the grass, from lying where I couldn't see, and I looked. There were no elephants there. I swung my eyes to the right. Don't ask me to explain it. Those elephants that were about halfway to the door here were now 200 yards over there with their backs to me feeding normally. How did that happen? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. I can't tell you what happened. All I know is I believe by the power of God an angel or something picked him up and put him there. And I stand here today because of that spiritual dimension. He can do anything. I have never been able to explain that. Game rangers wouldn't believe me because most of them are pagans, the ones I knew. 
And they'd think he's just one of those fellows who tells stories like Jim Bridger went out to Yellowstone Park and told people all those stories. That's what the power of God can do for you and for me. He's in charge. It wasn't my day. No two elephants were going to crush me. I was a Christian. I loved God. And he saved me. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that as we live and move in Jesus Christ, as we live live and have available to us this resurrection power that transforms life, we can have this assurance that our lives are lived in the palm of your hand and nothing can pluck us out of there unless we choose to go. And so we ask, Lord God, that you'll help each one of us here to live under the authority of that umbrella. If there are those here this morning who have strayed away from it, we ask, I ask you, Lord God, would you help them just to come back humbly and tell you, you know it all anyway, but you like us to say it, declare what we have done wrong, ask your forgiveness, and be changed. And what is so wonderful about you, Lord God, is your love because that prodigal son, when he came back, he had it all worked out, Lord. I was going to say to his father, I have sinned against you and I've done this, that, and the other, but that love, his father said to him, come. He put a ring on his finger and killed the fatted calf for him and that's what you do with us. We thank you, Lord God, that we can come back and you don't put us on probation. You receive us with warm, open arms and say your sins are forgiven. Your life is set free. Now live in my love. So help those who've slipped away to do that. And the rest of us, Lord God, as we live and move and have our being in you, help us always to walk humbly, knowing each day that we need to be proactive with you, that we need to be honest with you, and open our lives to you so that you can lead us day by day from one degree of transformed glory to another. We thank you for the upward road. We know that we will achieve it through faith in Jesus Christ who is alive forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.